Okay, this is chapter four, Tools of the Trade. By the end of this chapter, we should be able to outline the range of enzymes used in gene manipulation, describe the mode of action and uses of type two restriction enzymes, describe the mode of action and uses of a range of DNA modifying enzymes, and describe the mode of action and use of DNA ligase. So remember, ligase links things together, like a ligament. So we'll need to know the various groups of enzymes used in gene manipulation, a type two restriction endonucleases, restriction mapping, endonucleases, exonucleases, polymerases, and N-modifying enzymes, reverse transcriptase, and DNA ligase. So last week we talked about what might be termed having good infrastructure or a good laboratory setup with access to various essential items of equipment. The genetic engineer needs to, at her heart, be able to cut and join DNA from different sources. This is the essence of creating recombinant DNA in the test tube. In addition, certain modifications to the DNA may have to be carried out during the various steps required to produce, clone, and identify recombinant DNA molecules. The tools that enable these manipulations to be performed are enzymes, which are purified from a wide range of organisms and can be bought from various suppliers. In this chapter, we'll have a look at some of the important classes of enzymes that make up the genetic engineer's toolkit. Restriction enzymes cutting the DNA. The restriction enzymes, which cut DNA at defined sites, represent one of the most important groups of enzymes for the manipulation of DNA. These enzymes are found in bacterial cells where they function as part of a protective mechanism called the restriction modification system. In this system, the restriction enzyme hydrolysis hydrolyzes any exogenous, exogenous DNA that appears in the cell. To prevent the enzyme acting on the host cell DNA, the modification enzyme of the system, a methylase, modifies the host DNA by methylation, CH4, of particular bases in the restriction enzyme's recognition sequence, which prevents the enzyme from cutting the DNA. Restriction enzymes act as a protection system for bacteria in that they hydrolyze exogen exogenous DNA that is not methylated by the host modification enzyme. Restriction enzymes are of three types, one, two, or three. Most of the enzymes commonly used today are type two enzymes, which have the simplest mode of action. These enzymes are nucleases, and as they cut at an internal position in a DNA strand, as opposed to beginning degradation at one end, they are known as endonucleases. Thus, the correct designation of such enzymes is they are a type two restriction endonuclease, although they are often simply called restriction enzymes. In essence, they may be thought of as molecular scissors. Type two restriction endonucleases. Restriction enzyme nomenclature is based on a number of conventions. The generic and specific names of the organism in which the enzyme is found are used to provide the first part of the designation, which comprises the first letter of the generic name and the first two letters of the specific name. Thus, an enzyme from strain Escheria coli is e termed ECO, one from Bacillus aniloliquefaciens is BAM, and so on. 
Further descriptors may be added, depending on the bacterial strain involved and on the presence or absence of extra-chromosomal elements. Two widely used enzymes from the aforementioned bacteria are ECO-RI and BAM-HI. The binding of BAM-HI to its recognition is shown below. Um, so we see a picture where BAM has wrapped around the DNA helix, and it's big. So DNA helix is very small, BAM is very big, um, and then it looks like it's splitting apart the phosphodiester linkages. So to generate some of this modeling, we would use RASMOL, Molecular Modeling Software, which is a public domain <coughs> system. Just as a, as a note for future reference here. The value of restriction endonucleases lies in their specificity. Each particular enzyme recognizes a specific sequence of bases in the DNA, the most common recognition sequences being four, five, or six base pairs in length. Thus, given that there are four bases in the DNA, and assuming a random distribution of bases, the expected frequency of any particular sequence can be calculated as 4 raised to n power, where n is the length of the recognition sequence. This predicts that tetranucleotide sites will occur every 256 base pairs, pentanucleotide sites every 1,024 base pairs, and hexanucleotide sites every 4,096 base pairs. There is, as one might expect, considerable variation from these values, but generally the fragment lengths produced will lie around the calculated value. Thus an enzyme recognizing a tetranucleotide sequence, sometimes called a four-cutter, will produce shorter DNA fragments than a six-cutter. Some of the most commonly used restriction enzymes are listed in Table 4.1 with their recognition sequences and cutting sites, <clears throat> but I won't go into that. So in the table, though, you can see where the recognition sequences are listed out in single-strand form, written from 5' prime to 3' prime direction. And the place where the enzyme would cut are given in double-stranded form to show the end that you would get. So 5 prime refer to 5 prime, 3 prime protruding termini, respectively. The point at which the phosphodiester bonds are broken are shown with an arrow on each strand of the recognition sequence. Restriction enzymes are very simple to use. An appropriate amount of enzyme is added to the target DNA in a buffer solution, and the reaction is incubated at the optimum temperature, usually 37 degrees C, for a suitable length of time. Enzyme activity is expressed in units, with one unit being the amount of enzyme that will cleave one microgram of DNA in one hour at 37 degrees C. Although most experiments require a complete digestion of the target DNA, there are some cases where various combinations of enzyme concentration and incubation time may be used to achieve only partial digestion. The type of DNA fragment that a particular enzyme produces depends on the recognition sequence and on the location of the cutting site with the sequence, within the sequence. As we've already seen, fragment length is dependent on the frequency of occurrence of the recognition sequence. The actual cutting site of the enzyme will determine the type of ends that the cut fragment has, which is important with regard to further manipulation of the DNA. Three types of fragments may be produced. Blunt ends, sometimes known as flush-ended fragments. Two, 
fragments with protruding three prime ends and three fragments with protruding five prime ends. An example of each type is shown below. So one very useful feature of restriction enzymes is that they can generate cohesive or sticky ends that can be used to join DNA from two different sources together to generate recombinant DNA molecules. If they have cohesive sticky ends, um, one annealing the complementary regions, so one end anneals the complementary regions on the new strand, and the phosphodiester backbone can be sealed using DNA ligase. Enzymes such as PST1 and ECORI generate DO fragments with cohesive or sticky ends as the producing protruding sequences can base pair with complementary sequences generated by the same enzyme. Thus, by cutting two different DNA samples with the same enzyme and mixing the fragments together, recombinant DNA can be produced. This is one of the most useful applications of restriction enzymes and is a vital part of many manipulations in genetic engineering. Restriction mapping. Most pieces of DNA will have recognition sites for various restriction enzymes and it's often beneficial to know the relative locations of some of these sites. The technique used to obtain this information is known as restriction mapping. This involves cutting a DNA fragment with a selection of restriction enzymes singly and in various combinations. The fragments produced are run on an agarose gel and their size is determined. From the data obtained, the relative locations of the cutting sites can be worked out. A fairly simple example can be used to illustrate the technique as outlined in the following. Let us say we wish to map the cutting sites for the restriction enzyme BAN-HI, ECO-RI, and PST1, and that the DNA fragment of interest is a 15 KB in length. Various digestions are carried out, and the fragments arising from these are analyzed and their size is determined. The results obtained are shown in figure in table 4.2. As each of the single enzyme reactions produces two DNA fragments, we can conclude that the DNA has a single cutting site for each enzyme. The double digests enable a map to be drawn up, and the triple digest confirms this. Construction of the map is outlined in figure 4.4. So you see a table, and the data shown are in lengths in KPV of fragments that are produced on digestion of a 15 kbp DNA fragment with single, double, and triple digests. And then you see the fragments produced by each digest listed in order of length. And the map that you get looks like garbage to me. <laughs> that's, that's not great. <laughs> we'll come back to that. Restriction enzymes and DNA ligase provide the cutting and joining functions that are essential for the production of recombinant DNA molecules. Oh, and just a note, this is just the introduction, right? We have a proper biochemistry text that we're going to be going through um, as soon as we finish this one. So the genetic engineering portion is purely an introduction. It's not the actual biochemistry involved. Other enzymes used in genetic engineering may be loosely termed DNA modifying enzymes with the term used here to include degradation, synthesis, and alteration of DNA. 
Some of the most commonly used enzymes are described next. Nucleases. Nuclease enzymes degrade nucleic acids by breaking the phosphodiester bonds that hold the nucleotides together. Restriction enzymes are good examples of endonucleases, which cut within a DNA strand. A second group of nucleases, which degrade DNA from the termini of the molecule, are known as exonucleases. Apart from restriction enzymes, there are four useful nucleases that are often used in genetic engineering. These are BAL31 and exonuclease 3, which are both exonucleases, and deoxyribonuclease 1, or dinase 1, and S1 nuclease, which is an endonuclease. These enzymes differ in their precise mode of action and provide the genetic engineer with a variety of strategies for attacking DNA. Their features are summarized in Figure 4.5. In addition to DNA-specific nucleases, there are ribonucleases, or RNases, which act on RNA. These may be required for many of the stages in the preparation and analysis of recombinants and are usually used to get rid of unwanted RNA in the preparation. However, as well as being useful, ribonucleases can pose some unwanted problems. They're remarkably difficult to inactivate and can be secreted in sweat. Ooh. That's cool. Ribonucleases and sweat, huh? Thus, contamination with RNases can be a problem in preparing recombinant DNA, particularly where cDNA is prepared from an mRNA template. In this case, it's vital to avoid RNase contamination by wearing gloves and ensuring that all glass and plastic equipment is treated to avoid ribonuclease contamination. Hmm. Polymerases. Polymerase enzymes synthesize copies of nucleic acid molecules and are used in many genetic engineering procedures. When describing a polymerase enzyme, the terms DNA-dependent or RNA-dependent may be used to indicate the type of nucleic acid template that enzymes use. Thus, a DNA-dependent DNA polymerase copies DNA into DNA, an RNA-dependent DNA polymerase copies RNA into DNA, and a DNA-dependent RNA polymerase transcribes, transcribes DNA into RNA. These enzymes synthesize nucleic acids by joining together nucleotides whose bases are complementary to the template strand bases. The synthesis always proceeds in 5' prime to 3' prime direction, as each subsequent nucleotide addition requires a free 3' prime OH group for the formation of the phosphodiester bond. This requirement also means that a short double-stranded region with an exposed 3'OH, which is a primer, is necessary for synthesis to begin. So polymerases are the copying enzymes of the cell, and they are essential parts of the genetic engineer's armory. These enzymes are template-dependent and can be used to copy long stretches of DNA or RNA. The enzyme DNA polymerase 1 has, in addition to its polymerase function, 5' prime to 3' prime and 3' prime to F' prime, uh, 5' prime exonuclease activities. The enzyme catalyzes a strand replacement reaction where the 5' to 3' prime exonuclease function degrades the non-template strand as the polymerase synthesizes the new copy. A major use of this enzyme is in the NIC translation procedure for radiolabeling labeling DNA. The 5' prime to 3' prime exonuclease function of DNA polymerase 1 can be removed by cleaving the enzyme to produce what is known as the Klenau fragment. This retains the polymerase and 3' prime to 5' prime exonuclease activities. 
The Klenow fragment is used where a single-stranded DNA molecule needs to be copied because the 5' to 3' exonuclease function is missing. The enzyme cannot degrade the non-template strand of DSDNA during synthesis of the new DNA. The 3' to 5' exonuclease activity is suppressed under the conditions normally used for the reaction. Major uses for the Klenow fragment include radial labeling by prime synthesis and DNA sequencing by the deoxy method, dideoxy method, in addition to the copying of single-stranded DNAs during the production of recombinants. Reverse transcriptase, or RTase, is an RNA-dependent DNA polymerase and therefore produces a DNA strand from an RNA template. It has no associated exonuclease activity. The enzyme is used mainly for copying mRNA molecules or in the preparation of cDNA for cloning, although it will also act on DNA templates. Enzymes that modify the ends of DNA molecules. The enzymes alkaline phosphatase and polynucleotide kinase are, and terminal transferase act on the termini of DNA molecules and provide important functions that are used in a variety of ways. The phosphatase and kinase enzymes, as their names suggest, are involved in the removal or the addition of phosphate groups. Bacterial alkaline phosphatase, there's also a similar enzyme, cath intestinal alkaline phosphatase, removes phosphate groups from the 5' ends of DNA, leaving a 5' OH group. The enzyme is used to prevent unwanted ligation of DNA molecules, which can be a problem in certain cloning procedures. It's also used prior to the addition of radioactive phosphate to the 5' ends of DNAs by polynucleotide kinase. Terminal transferase, or terminal deoxynucleotidal transferase, repeatedly adds nucleotides to any available 3' terminus. Although it works best on protruding 3' ends, conditions can be adjusted so that blunt-ended or 3' recessed molecules may be utilized. The enzyme is mainly used to add homopolymer tails to DNA molecules prior to the construction of recombinants. DNA ligase, or joining of DNA molecules. DNA ligase is an important cellular enzyme as its function is to repair broken phosphodiester bonds that may occur at random or as a consequence of DNA replication or recombination. In genetic engineering, it is used to seal discontinuities in the sugar phosphate chains that arise when recombinant DNA is made by joining DNA molecules from different sources. It can therefore be thought of as molecular glue, which is used to stick pieces of DNA together. This function is crucial to the success of many experiments, and DNA ligase is therefore a key enzyme in genetic engineering. The enzyme used most often in experiments is T4 DNA ligase, which is purified from E. coli cells infected with bacteriophage T4. Although the enzyme is most efficient when sealing gaps and fragments that are held together by cohesive ends, it will also join blunt-ended DNA molecules together under appropriate conditions. The enzyme works best under 37 degrees C, but is also used at much lower temperatures, including 4 to 15 degrees C, to prevent thermal denaturation of the short base paired regions that hold the cohesive ends of the DNA molecules together. The ability to cut, modify, and join DNA molecules gives the genetic engineer the freedom to create recombinant DNA molecules. The technology involved is a test tube technology with no requirement for a living system. However, once a recombinant DNA fragment has been generated in vitro, 
It usually has to be amplified so that enough material is available for subsequent manipulation and analysis. Amplification usually requires a biological system unless the polymerase chain reaction PCR is used. We must, therefore, examine the types of living systems that can be used for the propagation of recombinant DNA molecules. There's a lovely concept map here where cutting, modifying, and joining DNA is requires enzymes, which are catalytic protein molecules, and purified from a wide range of cell types and are available from commercial suppliers. Enzymes may be broken down into three main groups, restriction endonucleases, DNA modifying enzymes, and DNA ligase. Restriction endonucleases that cut DNA at defined recognition sites and are used for generating DNA fragments and restriction mapping. DNA modifying enzymes such as nucleases, polymerases, and enzymes that act on termini. Nucleases can be broke, broken into two types, endonucleases such as restriction enzymes DNase1 and S1 nuclease, and exonucleases such as BAL31 and XO3, polymerases such as DNA polymerase, clinal fragment, and reverse transcriptase, and enzymes that act on the termini such as alkaline phosphatase, polynucleotide kinase, and terminal transferase. DNA ligase, which joins DNA molecules via the phosphodiester linkage to generate recombinant DNA. Chapter 5, Host Cells and Vectors. So the goal of this chapter is to outline the types of host cells used in gene manipulation, describe the features of plasmid and bacteriophage vectors, describe vectors for use in eukaryotic hosts, outline the range of methods available to get recombinant DNA into host cells. So by the end of the chapter, we'll know the host and vector requirements for gene cloning, plasmid-based vectors for use in prokaryotic hosts, vectors based on bacteriophages, vectors for use in eukaryotic host cells, artificial chromosomes, transformation and transinfection, packaging recombinant DNA in vitro, microinjection, and biolistic DNA delivery methods. So we just looked at the tools required to construct recombinant DNA. This process is carried out in the test tube and produces recombinant molecules that must be processed further to enable selection of the required sequence. In some experiments, hundreds of thousands of different DNA fragments may be produced, and the isolation of a particular sequence would seem to be an almost impossible task. It's a bit like looking for the proverbial needle in a haystack, with the added complication that the needle is made of the same material as the haystack. Fortunately, the methods available, provided, methods available provide a relatively simple way to isolate specific gene sequences. To achieve this, we need to move away from a purely in vitro process and begin to use the properties and characteristics of living systems. Three things have to be done to isolate a gene from a collection of recombinant DNA sequences. One, the individual recombinant molecules have to be physically separated from each other. Two, the recombinant sequences have to be amplified to provide enough material for further analysis. Three, the specific fragment of interest has to be selected by some sort of sequence-dependent method. 
In this chapter, we will look at the first two of these requirements, which in essence represent the systems and techniques involved in gene cloning. This is an essential part of most genetic manipulation programs. Even if the desired result is transgenic organisms, the gene to be used must first be isolated and characterized, and therefore cloning systems are required. Some of the methods used for selecting specific sequences will be described later in chapter eight. The biology of gene cloning is concerned with the selection and use of a suitable carrier molecule or vector and a living system or host in which the vector can be propagated. In this chapter, the various types of host cells will be described first, followed by vector cells and methods for getting DNA into cells. So gene cloning uses a vector or a carrier to propagate the desired sequence in a host cell and choosing the right vector and host combination is, a very, is one of the most critical stages of the cloning procedure. Host cell types. The type of host cell used for a particular application will depend mainly on the purpose of the cloning procedure. If the aim is to isolate a gene for structural analysis, the requirement may call for a simple system that is easy to use. If the aim is to express the genetic information in a higher eukaryote, such as a plant, a more specific system will be required. These two aims are not necessarily mutually exclusive. Often a simple primary host is used to isolate a sequence that is then introduced into a more complex system for expression. The main type of host cells are shown in table 5.1 and are described in the following sections. So our typical hosts are bacteria, fungi, plants, and animals. Um, and we have some basic descriptions of each one of those. So in bacteria, we know that they're prokaryotic. They can be gram-negative or gram-positive. E. coli, Bacillus subtilis, Streptomyces species, good examples. Fungi are eukaryotic, microbial or filamentous. Uh, Saccharomyces cerevisiae, Aspergillus nidulans. Plants, eukaryotic, we can have protoplasts, intact cells, or whole organisms of all kinds of types. And uh, animals are obviously eukaryotic. We can have insect cells, mammalian cells, oocytes, or the whole organism. And our favorite insects are Drosophila melangaster. Bacteria and fungi generally cultured in a liquid media or on agar plates. And plant and animal cells may be subject to manipulation either in tissue culture or in developing organisms. Prokaryotic hosts. An ideal host cell should be easy to handle and propagate and should be available as a wide variety of genetically defined strains and should accept a range of vectors. The bacterium E. coli fulfills these requirements and is used in many cloning protocols. E. coli has been studied in great detail and many different strains were isolated by microbial geneticists as they investigated the genetic mechanisms of this prokaryotic organism. Such studies provided essential background information on which genetic engineering is based. E. coli is a gram-negative bacterium with a single chromosome packed into a compact structure known as a nucleoid. The genome size is some 4.6 times 10 to the 6 base pairs, and the complete sequence is now known. The processes of gene expression, transcription, and translation are coupled with the newly synthesized mRNA being immediately available for translation. There is no post-transcriptional modification of the primary transcript as it is commonly found in eukaryotic cells, and E. coli can therefore be considered as one of the simplest host cells. 
Much of the gene cloning that is carried out routinely in laboratories uses E. coli hosts with many genetically different strains available for specific applications. In addition to E. coli, other bacteria may be used as hosts for gene cloning experiments with examples including Bacillus, Pseudomonas, and Streptomyces. There are, however, certain drawbacks with most of these. Often there are fewer suitable vectors available for use in such cells than is the case for E. coli, and getting recombinant DNA into the cell can cause problems. This is particularly troublesome when primary cloning experiments are envisaged, such as the direct introduction of ligated recombinant DNA into the host cell. For this type of application, reliable and efficient procedures are required to maximize the yield of cloned fragments. It is, therefore, often more sensible to perform an initial cloning procedure in E. coli to isolate the required sequence and then to introduce the purified DNA into the target host. Many of the drawbacks can be overcome by using this approach, particularly when vectors that can function in the target host and in E. coli or shuttle vectors are used. Use of bacteria other than E. coli will not be discussed further in this book because they're hard. <laughs> so there are some other books that are suggested, but we'll stick with E. coli for now. Eukaryotic hosts. One disadvantage of using an organism such as E. coli as a host for cloning is that it's a prokaryote and therefore lacks the membrane-bound nucleus and other organelles found in eukaryotic cells. This means that certain eukaryotic genes may not function in E. coli as they would in the normal environment, which can hamper their isolation by selection mechanisms that depend on gene expression. Also, if the production of a eukaryotic protein is the desired outcome of a cloning experiment, it may not be easy to ensure that a prokaryotic host produces a fully functional protein. Eukaryotic cells range from microbes, such as yeast and algae, to cells from complex multicellular organisms, such as people. The microbial cells have many of the characteristics of bacteria with regard to ease of growth and availability of mutants. Higher eukaryotes present a different set of problems to the genetic engineer, many of which require specialized solutions. Often, the aim of gene manipulation experiment in higher plant or animal is to alter the genetic makeup of the organism by creating a transgenic, rather than to isolate a gene for further analysis or to produce large amounts of a particular protein. Transgenesis is discussed further in chapter 13. And since transgenesis is a primary component of most of my fiction work, I feel like we need to address that. So this will be good. The yeast Saccharomyces cerevisiae is one of the most commonly used eukaryotic microbes in genetic engineering. It's been used for centuries in the production of bread and beer and has been studied extensively. The organism is amenable to classical genetic analysis and a range of mutant cell types is available. In terms of genome complexity, S. cerevisiae has about 3.5 times more DNA than E. coli. The complete genome sequence is now known. Other fungi that may be used for gene cloning experiments include Aspergillus nigulans and Neurospora crassa. And we have some other special ones from wastewater treatment. So, there are options. The yeast Saccharomyces, oops, I'm sorry. Plant and animal cells may also be used as hosts for gene manipulation experiments. Unicellular algae, such as Chlamydomonas reinhardti, have all the advantages of microorganisms, plus the structural and functional organization of plant cells, and their use in genetic manipulation will increase as they become more widely studied. 
Other plant and animal cells are usually grown as cell cultures, which are much easier to manipulate than cells in a whole organism. Mammalian cell lines, in particular, are very important sources of cells from gene manipulation procedures. Some aspects of genetic engineering in plant and animal cells are discussed in the final section of this book, which is the whole reason we're reading it, right? Transgenic plants, a little bit of fiction, good stuff. Plasmid vectors for use in E. coli. There are certain essential features that vectors must possess. Ideally, they should be fairly small DNA molecules to facilitate isolation and handling. There must be an origin of replication so that their DNA can be copied and thus maintained in the cell population as the host organism grows and divides. It is desirable to have some sort of selectable marker that will enable the vector to be detected, and the vector must also have at least one unique restriction endonuclease recognition site to enable DNA to be inserted during the production of recombinants. Plasmids have these features and are extensively used as vectors in cloning experiments. Some features of plasmid vectors are described next. What are plasmids? Many types of plasmids are found in nature, in bacteria, and in some yeasts. They are circular DNA molecules, relatively small when compared to the host cell chromosome, that are maintained mostly in an extra-chromosomal state. Although plasmids are generally dispensable, i.e. not essential for cell growth and division, they often confer traits such as antibiotic resistance on the host organism, which can be a selective advantage under certain conditions. The antibiotic resistance genes encoded by plasmid DNA, or pDNA, are often used in the construction of vectors for genetic engineering as they provide a convenient means of selecting cells containing the plasmid. When plated on growth medium that contains the appropriate antibiotic, only the plasmid-containing cells will survive. This is a very simple and powerful selection me method. Plasmids can be classified into two groups, conjunctive and non-conjunctive plasmids. Conjunctive plasmids can mediate their own transfer between bacteria by the process of conjugation, which requires functions specified by the tra transfer and MOB, mobilizing regions carried on the plasmid. Non-conjunctive plasmids are non-self-transmittable and may be mobilized by a conjunction-proficient plasmid if their MOB region is functional. A further classification is based on the number of copies of the plasmid found in the host cell, a feature known as the copy number. Low copy number plasmids tend to exhibit stringent control of DNA replication with replication of the pDNA closely tied to the host cell chromosomal DNA replication. High copy number plasmids are termed relaxed plasmids with DNA replication not dependent on host cell chromosomal DNA replication. In general terms, conjunctive plasmids are large show stringent control of DNA replication and are present at low copy numbers, while non-conjunctive plasmids are small, show relaxed DNA replication, and are present at high copy numbers. Mm, and then we have some gobbledygook here. So we're looking at types of plasmids in this properties, tables of naturally occurring plasmids. Great. Some of these are antibiotics, some of these are resistant, um, and there's some copy information. Basic cloning plasmids. For genetic engineering, naturally occurring plasmids have been extensively modified to produce vectors that have the desired characteristics. In naming plasmids, P is used to designate plasmid, and this is usually followed by the initials of the workers who isolated or constructed the plasmid. 
Numbers may be used to classify any particular isolate. An important plasmid in the history of gene manipulation is PBR322, which was developed by Francisco Bolivar and his colleagues. Construction of PBR322 involved a series of manipulations to get the right pieces of DNA together, with the final result containing DNA from three sources. The plasmid has all the features of a good vector, such as low molecular weight, antibiotic resistance genes, and an origin of replication and several single-cut restriction endonuclease recognition sites. Two aspects of plasmid, plasmid vector development are worthy of note at this point, as exemplified by PBR322. First, there are several plasmids in the PBR series, each with a slightly different feature. Second, the PBR series has been the basis for the development of many more plasmid vectors, often by subcloning parts of the vector and joining with other DNA sequences, perhaps taken from a different vector. These two aspects can be traced through other families of plasmid-based vectors. In the early days of plasmid vector development, scientists were usually willing to share their vectors freely. While this is still the case in many applications, there are sometimes issues involving intellectual property rights and trademarks where plasmids have been developed by companies and marketed on a commercial basis. Can anyone say Monsanto? Woof. One variant of PBR322 is worth describing to illustrate how a relatively simple change can affect plasmid properties and perhaps improve some aspects of the original. The plasmid is PAT153, which is still widely used and has some advantages over its progenitor. The vector PAT153 is a deletion derivative of PBR322. The plasmid was isolated by the removal of two fragments of DNA from PBR322 using the restriction enzyme HI2. The amount of DNA was small, 705 base pairs, but the effect was to increase the copy number some threefold and to remove sequences necessary for mobilization. Thus, PAT153 is in some respects a better vector than PBR322 as it is present as more copies per cell and has a greater degree of biological containment because it is not mobilizable. In vectors such as PBR322 and PAT153, the presence of two antibiotic resistance genes, AP R, how do we say this? AP exponent R and TC exponent R enables selection for cells harboring the plasmid, as such cells will be resistant to both ampicillin and tetracycline. An advantage, added advantage is that the re unique restriction sites within the antibiotic resistance genes permit selection of clone DNA by what is known as insertional inactivation, where the inserted DNA interrupts the coding sequence of the resistance gene and so alters the phenotype of the cell carrying the recombinant. This is discussed further in section 8.1.2. Slightly more exotic plasmid vectors. Although plasmids PBR322 and PAT153 are still often used for many applications in gene cloning, there are situations where other plasmid vectors may be more suitable. Generally, these have been constructed so that they have particular characteristics not found in the simpler vectors, such as a wider range of restriction sites for cloning DNA fragments. They may contain specific promoters for the expression of inserted genes, or they may offer other advantages, such as direct selection for recombinants. 
Despite these advantages, the well-tried vectors such as PBR322 and PAT153 are often more than sufficient if a relatively simple procedure is being used. I cannot imagine that anything I would want to do would require anything more complicated than PBR or PAT. One series of plasmid vectors that has proved popular is the PUC family. These plasmids have a region that contains several unique restriction endonuclease sites in a short stretch of the DNA. This region is known as a polylinker or multiple cloning site and is useful because of the choice of site available for insertion of DNA fragments during recombinant production. A map of one of the PUC vectors with the restriction sites in its polylinker region is shown in figure 5.2. In addition to the multiple cloning sites in the polylinker region, the PUC plasmids have a region of beta-galactosidase gene that codes for what is known as the alpha peptide. This sequence contains the polylinker region and insertion of a DNA fragment into one of the cloning sites, which results in a non-functional alpha peptide. This forms the basis for a powerful direct recombinant screening method using chromo chromogenic substrate X-GAL, uh, which we'll go into in Chapter 8. Over the past few years, many different types of plasmid vectors have been derived from the basic cloning plasmids. Today, there are many different plasmids available for specific purposes, often from commercial sources. These vectors are sometimes provided as part of a cloning kit that contains all the essential components to conduct a cloning experiment. This has made the technology much more accessible to a greater number of scientists, although it has not yet become totally foolproof. Um, and that is the one that I will be getting. Plasmid vectors have an upper size limit for efficient cloning, which can sometimes restrict their use where a large number of clones is required. In this case, it makes sense to clone longer DNA fragments and a di different vector system is needed. Although plasmid vectors have many useful properties and are essential for gene manipulation, they do have a number of disadvantages. One of the major drawbacks is the size of the DNA fragment that can be inserted into plasmids. The maximum is around 5 kb of DNA for many plasmids before cloning efficiency or insert stability are affected. In many cases, this is not a problem, but in some applications, it's important to maximize the size of the fragments that may be cloned. Such a case is the generation of a genomic library in which all the sequences present in the genome of an organism are represented. For this type of approach, vectors that can accept larger pieces of DNA are required. Examples of suitable vectors are those based on bacteriophage, lambda, and these are considered in the next section. So there's a lovely little doohickey here of um, commercially available plasmid vectors. And it looks like you can even find where you can order them from. That's handy. We'll need that. Bacteriophage vectors for use in E. coli. Although bacteriophage-based vectors are in many ways more specialized than plasma vectors, they fulfill essentially the same function, i.e. they act as a carrier molecule for fragments of DNA. Two types of bacteriophage, lambda and M13, have been extensively developed for cloning purposes. These will be described to illustrate the features of bacteriophages and the vectors derived from them. So what are bacteriophages? In the 1940s, Max Delbruck and the phage group that he brought into existence laid the foundations of modern molecular biology by studying bacteriophages. 
These are literally eaters of bacteria, viruses that are dependent on bacteria for their propagation. The term bacteriophage is often shortened to phage and can be described either one or many particles of the same type. Thus, we might say that a test tube contained one lambda phage or two times 10 to the six lambda phage particles. The plural term phages is used when different types of phage are being considered. We therefore talk about T4, M13, and lambda as being phages. Structurally, phages fall within three main groups. One, tailless, two, head with tail, and three, filamentous. The genetic material may be single or double-stranded, DNA or RNA, with double-stranded DNA, DSDNA, found most often. In tailless and tailed phages, the genome is encapsulated in an icosahedral protein shell called a capsid, sometimes known as a phage coat or head. In typical DSDNA phages, the genome makes up about 50% of the mass of the phage particle. Thus, phages represent relatively simple systems when compared to bacteria, and for this reason, they've been extensively used as models for the study of gene expression. And there's a lovely little picture here in location 1710. Phages may be classified as either virulent or temperate, depending on their life cycles. When a phage enters a bacterial cell, it can produce more phage and kill the cell, and this is called lytic growth cycle, or it can integrate into the chromosome and remain in a quiescent state without killing the cell, and this is called a lysogenic cycle. Virulent phages are those that exhibit a lytic life cycle only. Temperate phages exhibit lysogenic life cycles, but most can also undergo the lytic response when conditions are suitable. The best known example of a temperate phage is lambda, which has been the subject of intense research effort and is now more or less fully characterized in terms of its structure and mode of action. The genome of phage lambda is 48.5 kilobytes in length, or KB in length, and encodes some 46 genes. The entire genome has been sequenced. This was the first major sequencing project to be completed and represents one of the milestones of molecular genetics. And all of the regulatory sites are known. At the ends of the linear genome, there are short 12 BP single-stranded regions that are complementary. These act as cohesive or sticky ends, which enable circularization of the genome following infection. The region of the genome that is generated by the association of cohesive ends is known as the COS site. There's a very nice description of it, uh, location 1729, where you get some pictures of the lysis of the cell and mature phage particles discharged. Phage infection begins with adsorption, which involves the phage particle binding to the receptors on the bacterial surface. When the phage has adsorbed, the DNA is injected into the cell and the life cycle can begin. The genome circularizes and the phage initiates either the lytic or lysogenic cycle depending on the number of factors that include the nutritional and metabolic state of the host cell and the multiplicity of infection, or MOI, the ratio of phage to bacteria during adsorption. If the lysogenic cycle is initiated, the phage genome integrates into the host chromosome and is maintained as a prophage. It is then replicated with the chromosomal DNA and passed on to daughter cells in a stable form. If the lytic cycle is initiated, a complex sequence of transcriptional events essentially enables the phage to take over the host cell and produce multiple copies of the genome and structural proteins. These components are then assembled or packaged into a mature phage, which are then released following the lysis of the host cell. 
To determine the number of bacteriophage present in a suspension, serial dilutions of the phage stock are mixed with an excessive indicator bacteria, where the MOI is very low, and plated onto agar using soft agar overlay. On incubation, the bacteria will grow to form what is termed a bacterial lawn. Phage that grow in this lawn will cause lysis of the cells that the phage infects, and as this growth spreads, a cleared area or plaque will develop. Plaques can then be counted to determine the number of plaque-forming units in the stock suspension and may be picked from the plate for further growth and analysis. Phage may be propagated in liquid culture by infecting a growing culture of the host cells and incubating until cell lysis is complete. The yield of phage particle depends on MOI and the stage in the bacterial growth cycle at which infection occurs. I wonder if those plaques are the same ones from uh, like mad cow disease and um, the sleeping sickness, Alzheimer's. I wonder if that's how those plaques are, are physically formed. The filamentous phage M13 differs from lambda both structurally and its life cycle. The M13 genome is a single-stranded circular DNA molecule, 6,407 BP in length. The phage will infect only E. coli that have F. pili, a thread-like protein appendage found on conjugation-proficient cells. When the DNA enters the cell, it's converted to a double-stranded molecule known as the replicative form, RF, which replicates until there are about 100 copies in the cell. At this point, DNA replication becomes asymmetric and single-stranded copies of the genome are produced and extruded from the cell as M13 particles. The bacterium is not lysed and remains viable during this process, although growth and division are slower than in non-infected cells. Vectors based on bacteriophage lambda. The utility of phage lambda as a cloning vector depends on the fact that not all the lambda genome is essential for the phage to function. Thus, there's scope for the introduction of exogenous DNA, although certain requirements have had to be met during the development of cloning vectors based on phage lambda. First, the arrangement of genes on the lambda genome will determine which parts can be removed or replaced for the addition of exogenous DNA. It is fortunate that the central region of the lambda genome, between positions 20 and 35 on the map shown, is largely dispensable, so no complex rearrangement of the genome in vitro is required. The central region controls mainly the lysogenic properties of the phage, and much of this region can be deleted without impairing the functions required for the lytic infection cycle. Second, wild-type lambda phage will generally have multiple recognition sites for the restriction enzymes commonly used in cloning procedures. This can be a major problem, as it limits the choice of sites for the insertion of DNA. In practice, it's relatively easy to select for phage that have reduced numbers of sites for particular restriction enzymes, and the technique of mutagenesis in vitro may be used to modify remaining sites that are not required. Thus, it's possible to construct phage that have the desired combination of restriction enzyme recognition site. One of the major drawbacks of lambda vectors is the capsid places a physical constraint on the amount of DNA that can be incorporated during phage assembly which limits the size of exogenous DNA fragments that can be cloned. During packaging, viable phage particles can be produced from DNA that is between approximately 38 and 51 kb in length. Thus, a wild-type phage genome could accommodate only around 2.5 kb of cloned DNA before becoming too large for viable phage production. This limitation has been minimized by careful construction of vectors to accept pieces of DNA that are close to the theoretical maximum for the particular construct. Such vectors fall into two main classes, insertion vectors and replacement or substitution vectors. 
The difference between these two types of vectors is outlined below. I'm not even going to try and explain it. You're on your own. As with plasmids, there's now a bewildering variety of lambda vectors available for use in cloning experiments, each with slightly different characteristics. The choice of vector has to be made carefully with aspects such as size and of DNA fragments to be cloned and the preferred selection or screening method being taken into account. To illustrate the structural characteristics of lambda vectors, two insertion and two replacement vectors are described briefly. Although not as widely used as some other lambda vectors today, these illustrate some of the important aspects of vector design. Functional aspects of some lambda vectors are discussed in chapter 8 when selection and screening methods are considered. Insertion vectors have a single recognition site for one or more restriction enzymes, which enables DNA fragments to be inserted into the lambda genome. Examples of insertion vectors include lambda GT10 and Charon 16A. The latter is one of a series of vectors named after the ferryman of Greek mythology, who conveyed the spirits of the dead across the river Styx. Wow, how poetic. A rather apt example of what we might call bacteriophage culture. These two insertion vectors are illustrated in figure 8. Each has a single ECORI site in which DNA can be inserted. In lambda GT10 at 43.3 KB, this generates left and right arms of 32.7 and 10.6 KB respectively, which can, in theory, accept DNA fragments up to approximately 7.6 KB in length. The ECORI site lies within the CI gene, lambda repressor, and this forms the basis of selection or screening method based on plaque formation and morphology. In Charon 16A, the arms generated by ECORI digestion are 19.9 KB on the left and 21.9 KB on the right, and fragments of up to approximately 9 KB may be cloned. The ECORI site in Charon 16A lies within the beta-galactosidase gene, LAC-Z, which enables the detection of recombinants using XGAL. Insertion vectors often offer limited scope for cloning large pieces of DNA. Thus, replacement vectors were developed in which a central stuffer fragment is removed and replaced with an insert DNA. Two examples of lambda replacement vectors are EMBL4 and Charon 40. EMBL4 has a central 13.2 kb stuffer fragment flanked by inverted polylinker sequences containing sites for the restriction enzymes ECORI, BAMHI, and SALI. Two SAL1, I think, oops, SAL1. Two SAL1 sites are also present in the stuffer fragment. DNA may be inserted into any of the cloning sites. The choice depends on the method of preparation of the fragments. Often, a partial SAL3A or MBOI digest is used in the preparation of a genomic library, which enables the insertion into BAMHI site. Such inserts may be released from the recombinant by digestion with ECORI, and during preparation of the vector for cloning, the BAMHI digestion, which generates sticky ends for accepting the insert DNA, is often followed by a SAL-I digestion. This cleaves the stuffer fragment at the two internal SAL-I sites and also releases short BAMHI SAL-1 fragments from the polylinker region. This is helpful because it prevents the stuffer fragment from reannealing with the left and right arms and generating a viable phage that is non-recombinant. 
DNA fragments between approximately 9 and 22 KB may be cloned in EMBL4. The lower limit represents the minimum size required to form viable phage particles, and the upper maximum packageable size of around 51 KB. These size constraints can act as a useful initial selection method for recombinants, although an additional genetic selection mechanism can be employed with EMBL4. This is the spy exponent negative phenotype. So quick point here, they keep referring to these phages and viruses as particles, which I find really interesting because we did go through that whole section on like the definitions of life. So here you have a creature that can reproduce, that has a metabolism, that is a survivable thing that's being referred to as a particle, which is kind of cool. Karen 40 is a replacement vector in which the stuffer fragment is composed of multiple repeats of a short piece of DNA. This is known as a polystuffer, and it has the advantage that the restriction enzyme NAEI will cut the polystuffer into its component parts. This enables efficient removal of the polystuffer during vector preparation, and most of the surviving phage will be recombinant. The polystuffer is flanked by polylinkers with a more extensive range of restriction sites than those found in EMBL4, which increases the choice of restriction enzymes that may be used to prepare and insert DNA. The size range of fragments that may be cloned in Charon 40 is similar to that of EMBL4. Vectors based on bacteriophage M13. Two aspects of M13 infection are of value to the genetic engineer. First, the RF is essentially similar to a plasmid and can be isolated and manipulated using the same techniques. A second advantage is that the single-stranded DNA produced during the infection is useful in techniques such as DNA sequencing by the dideoxy method. This aspect alone made M13 immediately attractive as a potential vector. Unlike phage lambda, M13 does not have any non-essential genes. The 6407BP genome is also used very efficiently in that most of it is taken up by gene sequences so that the only part available for manipulation is a 507BP intergenic region. This has been used to construct the M13MP series of vectors by inserting a polylinker LAC-Z alpha peptide sequence into this region. This enables the XGAL screening system to be used for the detection of recombinants, as is the case with the PUC plasmids. When M13 is grown on a bacterial lawn, plaques appear because of the reduction in growth of the host cells, which are not lysed, and these may be picked for further analysis. A second disadvantage of M13 vectors is the fact that they do not function efficiently when long DNA fragments are inserted into the vector. Although in theory, there should be no limit to the size of clonable fragments, as the capsid structure is determined by genome size, unlike phage lambda, there's a marked reduction in cloning efficiency with fragments longer than about 1.5 kb. In practice, this was not a major problem as the main use of the early M13 vectors was in subcloning small DNA fragments for sequencing. In this application, single-stranded DNA production, coupled with ease of purification of the DNA from DNA cell cultures, outweighs any size limitation, although this has been alleviated by the construction of hybrid plasmid M13 vectors. Other vectors. So far, we've concentrated on what might be called basic plasmid and bacteriophage vectors for use in E. coli hosts. Although these vectors still represent a major part of the technology of gene manipulation, there's been a continued development of more sophisticated bacterial vectors, as well as vectors for other organisms. 
One driving force in this has been the need to clone and analyze ever larger pieces of DNA, as the emphasis in molecular biology has shifted toward the analysis of genomes rather than simply genes in isolation. In addition, the commercial development of integrated approaches to cloning procedures has required new vectors. Such kit-based products are often marketed as cloning technologies. Cloning kits have been a successful addition to the gene manipulator's armory, often reducing the time taken to achieve a particular outcome. In this section, we'll look at the features of some additional bacterial vectors and some vectors for use in other organisms. Hybrid plasmid phage vectors. One feature of phage vectors is the technique of packaging in vitro is sequence independent, apart from the requirement of having the cost sites separated by DNA of packageable sizes, 38 to 51 KB. This has been exploited in the construction of vectors that are made up of plasmid sequences joined to the cost sites of phage lambda. Such vectors are known as cosmids. They are small, 4 to 6 kilobyte or KB, and can therefore accommodate cloned DNA fragments up to some 47 KB in length. As they lack phage genes, they behave as plasmids when introduced to E. coli by the packaging infection mechanisms of lambda. Cosmid vectors therefore offer an apparently ideal system, a highly efficient and specific method of introducing the recombinant DNA into the host cell and a cloning capacity some twofold greater than the best lambda replacement vectors. However, they are not without disadvantages, and often the gains of using cosmids instead of phage vectors are offset by losses in terms of ease of use and further processing of clone sequences. Hybrid plasmid phage vectors in which the phage functions are expressed and utilized in some ways are known as phagemids. One such series of vectors is the lambda-zap family produced by Stratagene. Features of these phagemids include the potential to excise cloned DNA fragments in vivo as part of a plasmid. This automatic excision is useful in that it removes the need to subclone inserts from lambda into plasmid vectors for further manipulation. Hybrid plasmid phage vectors have been developed to overcome the size limitations of the M13 cloning system and are now widely used for applications such as DNA sequencing and the production of probes for use in hybridization studies. These vectors are essentially plasmids that contain the F1M13 phage origin of replication. When cells containing the plasmid are superinfected with phage, they produce single-stranded copies of the plasmid DNA and secrete those into the medium as M13-like particles. Vectors such as PEMBL9 or PBlueScript can accept DNA fragments up to 10 kb. Some commercially available vectors based on bacteriophages are listed in Table 5.4. Vectors for use in eukaryotic cells. When eukaryotic host cells are considered, vector requirements become a little more complex than the case for prokaryotic hosts. Bacteria are relatively simple in terms of genetic makeup, whereas eukaryotic cells have multiple chromosomes that are held within membrane-bound nucleus. Given the wide variety of eukaryotes, it's not surprising that vectors tend to be highly specialized and designed for specific purposes. The unicellular yeast, S. cerevisiae, has had a major impact on eukaryotic gene manipulation technology. A range of vectors for use in yeast cells has been developed, with the choice of vector depending on the particular application. Yeast episomal plasmids, or YEEPs, are based on the naturally occurring yeast 2 micrometer plasmid and may replicate autonomously or integrate into chromosomal locations. 
Yeast integrative plasmids are designed to integrate into the chromosome in a similar way to the yeeps, and the yeast replicated plasmid remains as independent plasmids and do not integrate. Plasmids that contain sequences from around the centromeric region of chromosomes are known as yeast centromere plasmids, and these behave essentially as mini-chromosomes. When dealing with higher eukaryotes that are multicellular, such as plants and animals, the problems of introducing recombinant DNA into the organisms become slightly different than those that apply to microbial eukaryotes, such as yeast. The aims of genetic engineering in higher eukaryotes can be considered broadly as twofold. One, to express clone genes in plant and animal cells and tissue culture for basic research on gene expression or for the production of useful proteins. And two, to alter the genetic makeup of the organism and produce a transgenic in which all the cells will carry the genetic modification. The latter aim in particular can pose technical difficulties as the recombinant DNA has to be introduced very early in development or in some sort of vector that will promote the spread of recombinant sequence throughout the organism. Vectors used for plant and animal cells may be introduced into cells directly by techniques such as those described in section 5.53, or they may have a biological entry mechanism if based on viruses or other infectious agents such as agrobacteria. Some examples of the types of systems that have been used in the development of vectors for plant and animal cells are given in Table 5.5. The use of specific vectors is described further in Part 3 of, the book, of this book when considering some of the applications of gene manipulation technologies in eukaryotes. The development of vectors for cloning very large pieces of DNA was essential to enable large genome sequencing projects to proceed at a reasonable rate. Although genomes such as S. cerevisiae have been sequenced mainly by using cosmid vectors to construct genomic libraries required. However, even, inserting size, even the insert size of 40 to 50 KB are too small to cope with projects such as the Human Genome Project. The development of yeast artificial chromosomes has enabled DNA fragments in the megabase range to be cloned, although there have been some problems of insert instability. YAKs, yeast artificial chromosomes, are the most sophisticated yeast vectors and to date represent the largest capacity vectors available. They have centromeric and telomeric regions and the recombinant DNA is therefore maintained essentially as a yeast chromosome. Artificial chromosomes are elegantly simple vectors that mimic the natural construction of chromosomal DNA with telomeres, a centromere, and an origin of replication in addition to features designed for ease of use such as selectable markers. A further development of artificial chromosome technology came with the construction of bacterial artificial chromosomes. These are based on the F plasmid, which is much larger than the standard plasmid cloning vectors and therefore offers the potential of cloning larger fragments. BACs can accept inserts of around 300 KB and many of the instability problems of YAKs can be avoided by using the bacterial version. Much of the sequencing of the human genome has been accomplished using a library of back recombinants. Vectors based on the phage 1, P1 have also been developed, both as phage vectors and also as P1-based artificial chromosomes. Getting DNA into cells. Manipulation of vector and insert DNAs to produce recombinant molecules is carried out in the test tube, and we are then faced with the task of getting the recombinant DNA into the host cell for propagation. The efficiency of this step is often a crucial factor in determining the success of a given cloning experiment, particularly when a large number of recombinants is required. 
Efficiency may not be an issue where a subcloning procedure is used as the target sequence is likely to have been cloned or perhaps generating using polymerase chain reaction. Therefore, the target sequence will be available in relatively large amounts so that the efficacy of the cloning protocol is not often a major concern. The methods available for getting recombinant DNA into cells depend on the type of host or vector system and range from very simple procedures to much more complicated and esoteric ones. In this section, we'll consider some of these methods. Transformation and transfection. The techniques of transformation and transfection represent the simplest methods available for getting recombinant DNA into cells. In the context of cloning in E. coli cells, transformation refers to the uptake of plasmid DNA and the transfection to the uptake of phage DNA. Transformation is also used more generally to describe uptake of any DNA by any cell and can be used in different contexts when talking about different growth transformations, such as occurs in the production of a cancerous cell. Transformation in bacteria was first demonstrated in 1928 by Frederick Griffith in his famous Transforming Principle experiment that paved the way for the discoveries that eventually showed that genes were made of DNA. However, not all bacteria can be transformed easily, and it was not until the early 1970s that transformation was demonstrated in E. coli, the mainstay of gene manipulation technology. To affect transformation of E. coli, the cells need to be made competent. This is achieved by soaking the cells in an ice-cold solution of calcium chloride, which induces competence in a way that's still not fully understood. Transformation of competent cells is carried out by mixing the plasmid DNA with the cells, incubating on ice for 20 to 30 minutes, and then giving a brief heat shock. Two minutes at 42 degrees C is often used, which appears to enable the DNA to enter the cells. The transformed cells are usually incubated in a nutrient broth at 37 degrees C for 60 to 90 minutes to enable the plasmids to become established and permit phenotypic expression of their traits. The cells can then be plated out onto selective media for propagation of cells harboring the plasmid. Isn't that interesting that it's an ice, calcium chloride, and then heat shock? I think that would have implications for the Stanley Miller experiment, like if we were going to redo this, and uh, implications for developing RNA out of amino acid groups. Transformation is an inefficient process in that, only, in that only a very small percentage of competent cells become transformed, representing uptake of a fraction of the plasmid DNA that is available. Thus, the process can become the critical step in a cloning experiment where a large number of individual recombinants is required or when the starting material is limiting. Despite these potential disadvantages, transformation is an essential technique and with care can yield up to 10 to the ninth transformed cells, or transformants, per microgram of input DNA, although transformation frequencies of around 10 to the 6th or 10 to the 7th transformants per microgram are more often achieved in practice. Many biological supply companies offer a variety of competent cell strains that have been pre-treated to yield high transformation frequencies. Whilst more expensive than homemade competent cells, these ready-to-go cells have become popular as they do save on preparation time. Transfection is a similar process to transformation, the difference being that the phage DNA is used instead of plasmid DNA. 
It's again a somewhat inefficient process, and it's largely been superseded by packaging in vitro for applications that require the introduction of phage DNA into E. coli cells. There is a note saying that transformation efficiency is often a limiting factor in using the technique, and this may be critical if the aim of the procedure is to prepare a representative clone bank. So here we see packaging a bacterial phage DNA. So you see a mature packaged recombinant lambda phage. You see uh, strain one, strain two of E. coli. And you can see that the phage has kind of been broken apart into heads, tails, and proteins. Um, the individual genomes are joined at the cost site. The recombinant genomes of lambda rec or recovered are being shown packaged in vitro, and a mixed lysate from two bacterial strains supply the head and tail precursors and the proteins required for the formation of mature lambda particles. So on adding this mixture to a concatamer, the DNA is cleaved at the cost sites. They have little arrows for us on that. And then packaged into individual phage particles, each containing the recombinant genome. Packaging phage DNA in vitro. During the lytic phase of, phase of phage lambda, the phage DNA is replicated to form what is known as a concatamer. This is a very long DNA molecule composed of many copies of the lambda genome linked together by the cost sites. When the phage particles are assembled, the DNA is packaged into the capsid, which involves cutting the DNA at the coast sites using phage-encoded endonuclease. Mature phage particles are thus produced, ready to be released on lysis of the cell and capable of infecting other cells. This process normally occurs in vivo, the particular functions being encoded by the phage genes. However, it is possible to carry out the process in the test tube, which enables recombinant DNA that is generated as a concatamer to be packaged into phage particles. To enable packaging in vitro, the components of the lambda capsid and the endonuclease must be available. In practice, two strains of bacteria are used to produce a lysate known as the packaging extract. Each strain is mutant in one phase of phage phase each strain is mutant in one function of phage morphogenesis so that the packaging extracts will not work in isolation. When the two are mixed with the concatameric recombinant DNA under suitable conditions, all the components are available and phage particles are produced. These particles can then be used to infect E. coli cells, which are plated out to obtain plaques. The process of packaging in vitro is summarized in figure 5.12. So packaging recombinant bacteriophage DNA in vitro mimics the normal process that occurs during phage maturation and assembly and has proved to be a very useful method for constructing genomic libraries. Alternative DNA delivery methods. The methods available for introducing DNA into bacterial cells are not easily transferred to other cell types. The phage-specific packaging system is not available for other systems, and transformation by normal methods may prove impossible or too efficient, inefficient to be a realistic option. However, there are alternative methods for introducing DNA into cells. Often these are more technically demanding and less efficient than the bacterial methods, but reliable results have been achieved in many situations where there appeared to be no hope of getting recombinant DNA molecules into the desired cell.
Oh, we're going to get weird here. So we've got some micro-injection, a micro-manipulator. Yeah, it's going to get weird. Most of the problems associated with getting DNA into non-bacterial cells have involved plant cells. Animal cells are relatively flimsy and can be transformed readily. However, plant cells pose a problem of a rigid cell wall, which is a barrier to DNA uptake. This can be alleviated by the production of protoplasts in which the cell wall is removed enzymatically. The protoplast can then be transformed using a technique such as electroporation, where an electrical pulse is used to create transient holes in the cell membrane through which DNA can pass. The protoplast can then be regenerated. In addition to this application, protoplasts also have an important role to play in the generation of hybrid plant cells by fusing protoplasts together. But it does make you wonder, since like fungi and microbes have already penetrated root cells and can already do nutrient transfer, why you can't just make one of the symbiotic filamentous fungi do it? Oh man. We've got a biolistic apparatus here. So DNA is coated onto these microprojectiles, which is, it's a little gun <laughs> with, with gum powder and everything. And you have these microprojectiles, so you fire this little gun of, of DNA um, using gunpowder or compressed gas, and then hopefully that punches through the, the tissue. So microinjection is where you take a very fine needle and you inject it directly into the nucleus. And that's been very successful with both plant and animal cells. So the cell is held on a glass tube by mild suction and the needle is used to pierce the membrane. So this requires mechanical micro manipulator and a microscope and a lot of practice. One obvious disadvantage is that this technique is labor intensive and not suitable for primary cloning procedures where large numbers of recombinants are required. However, in certain specialized cases, it's an excellent method for targeting DNA delivery once a suitable recombinant has been identified and developed to the point where microinjection is feasible. <laughs> All right, let's talk about biolistic. An ingenious and somewhat bizarre development has proved extremely useful in transformation of plant cells. The technique, which is called biolistic DNA delivery, involves literally shooting DNA into cells. The DNA is used to coat microscopic tungsten particles known as microprojectiles, which are then accelerated on a macroprojectile by firing a gunpowder charge or using compressed gas to drive the macroprojectile. At one end of the gun, there's a small aperture that stops the macroprojectile but allows the microprojectiles to pass through. And when directed at cells, these microprojectiles carry the DNA into the cell, and in some cases, stable transformation will occur. Humans are amazing. Okay, so let's go through our little concept map here. We've got gene cloning, which requires a host cell that includes both prokaryotic and eukaryotic cells. Prokaryotic cells such as E. coli B. subtilis need a method for the introduction of cloned DNA, such as transformation, transfection, packaging in vitro, microinjection, or biolistics, <laughs> which is funny. Uh, on our eukaryotic side, eukaryotes such as S. cerevisiae, plant cells or animal cells, again, need a method for the introduction of cloned DNA, such as transformation, transfection, packaging in vitro, microinjection, or biolistics. Gene cloning uses a vector or carrier molecule, which should have an origin of replication, selectable markers, and single restriction site, 
and can be inserted into a host cell by transformation, transfection, packaging in vitro, microinjection, or biolistics. That vector or carrier may have multiple cloning sites, expression signals, and can be inserted into a host cell using transformation, transfection, packaging in vitro, microinjection, or biolistics. A vector or carrier molecule has two main types, a plasmid, which is circular DNA molecules which have been specifically constructed, or a phage, such as lambda or M13. Lambda has two types, insertion vectors such as lambda GT10 and caron 16A, and replacement vectors such as EMBL4 and caron 40. Other types of vectors or carrier molecules include cosmids, phagemids, yeast artificial chromosomes, and viruses. Well done. <laughs>